This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival um, and welcome to Sanjeev Sahota and Monica Cantiani. I'm Catherine Summerhays, your chair for this afternoon and the theme of today's conversation is New Country, New Life. Now before I forget, because I will, um, I need to urge you to vote for the first book award. We have one... Um, debut novelist here this afternoon, Monica. Sonny, unfortunately, is... Well, not unfortunately. He's a, he's a <laughs> second no novelist, but debut. he's not eligible. But anyway, yes, I would encourage you to vote because you get to win, I think it's the 50 debut authors who are on the list. You get a copy of all of their books. So what more could you want as a literary audience? Um, the Irish Times reviewer said that nothing short of an asteroid would have made him put the year of the runaways down. And it was described by Carmilla Shamsi, writing for The Guardian, as a brilliant and beautiful novel. It's now been long-listed for this year's Man Booker Prize, and I'd be very, very surprised if it didn't make the shortlist. The year of the runaways tells of the bold dreams and daily struggles of an unlikely family thrown together by circumstance. Thirteen young men live in a house in Sheffield, each in flight from India and in desperate search of a new life. Tarlochan, a former rickshaw driver, will say nothing about his past in Bihar, and Avtar has a secret that binds him to protect the chaotic Randeep. Randeep, in turn, has a visa wife in a flat on the other side of town, a clever, devout woman whose cupboards are full of her husband's clothes in case the immigration men surprise her with a call. I'm just going to ask Sanjeev to um, introduce his novel and make a short reading. Uh, thanks, Catherine. Um, hi everyone, it's great to be here. It's my second time in Edinburgh and um, much better weather than the first time I came, <laughs> I'd say. My second book is called The Year of the Runaways and um, as Catherine said, it centres around um, four people who come together um, in Sheffield. I'm going to read from the beginning and this scene um, revol um, yeah, revolves around a couple of those characters, one's called Mrindeep, Deep Sangera, who's a 19-year-old man, young man, who's just come over from um, India, and I think it's fair to say he's feeling quite alone in himself and alone in the world. Um, he's feeling quite homesick. He's, he's a sort of a, a feckless young man, I'd say. And, um, and the other character is um, Narinda, who's his visa wife, so the woman he married in India, though she is from London, from Croydon, to gain entry to the UK. And he's meeting her for, though he met her in India, he's meeting her for the first time in England. I'm just being asked because of the wind if you can read. Oh, sorry. To this, if possible. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is um, Randeep. Randeep Sangera stood in front of the green and blue map tacked up to the wall. The map had come with a flat, and though it was big and wrinkled, and cigarette butts had once stubbed black islands into the mid-Atlantic. He'd kept it, a reminder of the world outside. He was less sure about the flowers, guilty-looking things he'd spent too long choosing at the petrol station. Get rid of them, he decided, but then heard someone was parking up outside, and the thought flew out of his head. He went down the narrow staircase, step by nervous step, straightening his cuffs, swallowing hard. He could see a shape through the mottled glass, when he opened the door, Narinda Kaur stood before him, brightly etched against the night, coat unbuttoned despite the cold. So, even in England, Shura Geersri, 
a domed, deep green one that matched her silver gamise. A flank of hair had come loose from under it and curled about her ear. He'd forgotten how large, how clever her eyes were. Behind her, the taxi made a U-turn and retreated down the hill. Narinda brought her hands together underneath her chin, Zatrigal, and Andeep nodded and took her suitcase and asked if she might follow him up the stairs. He set her luggage in the middle of the room and, straightening right back up, knocked his head against the board light bulb, the wire flexing like a snake disturbed from its tree. She was standing at the window, clutching her handbag with both hands. It's very quiet, Rindeep said. It's very nice. Thank you. You have been to Sheffield before? My first time. What's the area called again? Brightside, he said. She smiled a little and gazed around the room. She gestured towards the cooker. We used to have one like that years ago. Randeep looked too, a white standalone thing with an overhanging grill pan. The stains on the hob hadn't shifted no matter how hard he'd scrubbed. There was a microwave too, he said, pointing to the microwave, and a washing machine, and a toaster also, and kettle, and sofa sets, the carpet. He trailed off, ridiculous to himself. The heater works fine. It's included in the rent. I'm sorry there's no TV. I'm used to it. She looked to the wall. Nice map. Thank you. My father bought me from the council for 365 francs, recalls the narrator in Monica Cantiani's novel, The Encyclopedia of Good Reasons. She's a young girl, an immigrant to Switzerland, whose adoption has yet to be finalised. And when she finally moves into her new home with her new family, she recounts her days in the orphanage and how starkly different her life is now. Her new community speaks German, a language foreign to her, and she collects new words and phrases in matchboxes. Through her relationship with her adoptive parents, she bonds with her adoptive grandfather, Tat, and together they create the eponymous Encyclopedia of Good Reasons. This novel's set in the time of the crucial 1970 Swiss referendum on immigration and introduces us to a host of colourful characters from all countries and all walks of life. I'd just like to ask Monica to give a brief reading. Thank you. First of all, thank you to be here. Um, it's really lovely. Adoption was the word for what I had. Ely had explained it to me. It was my newest word. Put it, it, but it won't fit in the now box. Then take out care. You don't need that anymore. I do. Then put it in the future box. There's still a lot of space in that. My mother had written adoption. My father capital. Eli wrote at home. And where does happiness go? Life is not obliged to provide that. And adoption? Not that either. Write happiness for me. Happiness. It belongs in the matchbox improbability oblique hope. And life? Belongs in every box. Eli wrote down la vida. Is it the same in Spanish? It's not the same in any tongue. Not all of the flats in our building had central heating. So in winter most people used electric heaters. There were difficulties with the electricity, everybody wanted some, but the house hadn't been planned with so many tenants in mind. By night, the man wired us up to the house next door, 
and fuses went left, right and center. Not every radiator was legally present, not to mention all the TVs and radios. There was an uproar any time the ones next door discovered, again, that our radios, TVs and even heating had been running on their electricity. Once they did, it would be dark, cold and quiet in nearly every flat again after the police had ripped the wires out. Also, there were problems. Not only too many radiators had been standing around in the flats illegally, too many foreigners had too. Unlucky, my father called them. Unlucky beggars those that daily had waved out the back door and driven to a vacation on a faraway building site so they'd no be a burden on, on the electricity here until such times as things had calmed down again. The landlord sympathized with the foreigners, was sympathetic. To more coming because they belong together. To more coming because they are born. To them all wanting somewhere to go. He'd nothing against them wanting to increase in size. A pleasure shared is twice as great, he said. The foreigners understood him. They called Ellie and he erected a wall, made two flats out of one following which the landlord's pleasure was twice as great and the foreigner's was shared. Once a week he came to collect the rent. With his hands in the bulging, bulging pockets, pockets, he repeated in the stairwell that the foreigner's prospects lay in their modesty. That earned him a lot of names. My father called him an asshole. <laughs> and if he didn't get a punch in the teeth, it was only because Eddie was next to him. Even my mother called him a swine at the table and Ellie said, Eso cabrón, es un hombrecito sin cojones. <laughs> when it came from the heart like that, Ellie's Spanish interested my mother. Something that sounded lovely, like the name of a fancy pie that the neighborhood gave you a doctorate for, was something she'd have been glad to include in her collection. So as I've said, our theme for this afternoon is new country, new life. And as you can tell from both those readings, these new lives don't start in particularly great circumstances. Not a day seems to go by um, without immigration dominating our headlines at the moment. And, and Monica and I were talking before, this has been the case for the last 100 years. Um, I'm just really interested in why both of you chose such grand themes um, and how hard you found your research you know, and whether you feel you did the subject justice. And I'll start with you, Sanjeev. Um, in, in terms of why, um, this book was, the idea for this book was very clear even before I started my first book. Um, so I always knew this, this, this book was going to happen. And I think it's, it's, it's very, um, the biggest reason is because it's probably a world I'm very... Um, aware of whose existence I'm very aware of. I'm from the Sikh community, I'm part of the Sikh community in the UK, especially in the north of England around Sheffield and the um, North Derbyshire in the Midlands where the, the most of the book takes place or half of the book takes place. And I think the Sikh community does um, tacitly, some might say rampantly, support and encourage um, young men mostly young men though or women as well who want to come over to England um, 
know, with visas, um, or I suppose in some instances not, and want to build their lives. So those men were always very um, available to me to speak to in India. So I go to India um, a lot, once or twice a year at least. I'm, every time I'm over there, it was impossible not to meet people who um, wanted to come to England or had come to England but had been caught and deported back. So speaking to them, listening to their stories, um, understanding what life was like for them when they were in England, it seemed good material for a novel and, it, and, and a subject that really fascinates me, I guess because my own background is one that's full of migration as well. Thank you. Monica? Well, uh, first of all, I'm also I'm, I'm a citizen. I'm a, I'm a poli political human being also, and I'm a li I live in a context where I'm not, uh, I'm not happy with the politics in Switzerland, actually. I'm not happy with the politics in Germany, actually. And um, I remember, excuse me? Uh, it's the drilling in the background. I'm OK, OK. <laughs> Um, better that way? All right. Um, I mean, we had some referendums in, in the last few years which were very emotional and, and split, it, split it Switzerland also again, like in the 70s, into two parts, right-handed party and the rest. And uh, the right-handed party is not um, um, the main part of population, but they are very loud, like usually. And uh, I wanted to, I was angry. I was really angry. That was one of the causes why I, I wrote this book. And I wanted to have uh, this adoption like an overlay uh, over the immigration theme um, to make it not so easy to slip away and to get away uh, with, uh, how do you say, Donald Ausreden. <laughs> Excuses, thank you very much. <laughs> Excuse my English, I'm sorry. I'm struggling with language sometimes. Um, this is the cause why I'm chosen. I have chosen it uh, because I react as a political human being. I'm not just a consumer, as they want to tell me. So you both essentially took a very political issue, but turned it into a novel about family. I mean, t to me, The Year of the Runaways and the Encyclopedia of, of Good Reasons at the heart are family novels. They're not conventional families. We have adoptions. We have um, Italian Spaniards. We have, you know, 13 men living in the same house um, surviving. But I just wondered why you felt that using family to explore immigration was so important or, or a, a good way to explore it. But I mean, on all novels, really, comes to, when they come down to they're about families, they're about people coming together, and and the sparks that fly or, or don't fly um, um, between them. And yeah, you're right. It's thirteen young men in Sheffield, and but that, that is the life they the life they lead. And what interested me about that is that we think of. Um, migrants coming to England and you know there's a big conflation that happens between refugees and migrants and so forth but this, this story is um, about migrants and economic migrants mostly economic migrants um, actually we think of them in sort of a quite a homogenous way that they're all sort of there's one type they're just over here to do X Y and Z 
the the sort of the loud right wing rhetoric that we, that, that we some that we often hear. Was actually what interests me is actually there's a lot of hierarchies at play. There's lots of things that are brought over from India to do with caste, which continue to be brought over um, to England, and they play their part in these houses as well. So there's lots of levels, and this this sort of this cauldron of thing going off in yeah. the, in this in this house, and. So it was always going to be this group of people coming together and the things that fly. And, and I don't know if they do create a family um, of sorts. They're, they're, and it, cause it was, there was a point in the novel where I thought, I can make a decision here to either they're either going to come together and overcome their difficulties um, kind of um, um, in a sort of quite a collaborative way, or they're going to be what I think is much more true to life is they're going to disaggregate much more and they're going to actually be much more about fending for themselves and because th- talking to these young men that, that is what they that is what happens to them that's, that they, they told me that they almost become it, as one of the characters becomes a fight everything becomes a fight for the next job a fight to put food on the table a fight for money and there's a certain element of stabbing people in the back so well, because yeah because safety in numbers is really important but when there are 13 of you and there's one job exactly you you ha- you know you have to step on someone's head to get to yeah, it it's everyone for themselves actually which might be some families as well but yeah um, I mean, I think there's a very, very unconventional family in your novel, Monica, and, and unconventional in that the, the two figureheads of the family, husband and wife, have incredibly different views on immigration, race. You know, one is incredibly against immigration, and yet all their friends are from every single walk of life. I kind of wanted to, wanted to understand how you came to have that very strange group of people who liked yet hated each other all living in the same building. Because this is what actually happened in, in the 70s with this referendum. Uh, we have the so-called Schwarzenbach referendum, which was uh, a politician who wanted to get out um, 400 Italians in between two years, four years it was. And um, it really actually and literally splitted families emotionally. I, I was five years old, but I remember that mood. I remember it really well. And um, also now you have, uh, you have marriages or you have families with absolutely different opinions on what happens. Yeah? And uh, this is family is a thing we do all know. That's why I, I took it. Um, yeah, that's it, I think. No, I, I think that makes complete sense. I mean, I think we all exist in families where we totally disagree with our brother or sister over many issues or our parents over many issues. And I think what's interesting about yours, it was the same generation feeling very, very different things. It tends to be, I mean, as with yours, the older generation feel very differently about the world than these 19-year-old builders who kind of... Yeah. I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't show that because it's from the view from a child. And the yeah. view can't make... A, a child can't make these differences. So it's a very narrow, a thin line where you're walking on in narrating. In, in I mean, narration. I think you're both sort of writing from the point of view of a child. Yours are, are you know, teenage men, but they've come to a country where they know nothing. They don't know 
the rules about crossing the road or they, they don't know how to buy things in a shop when they first arrive. Yeah, to use an escalator. I mean, the horror of arriving in an airport, having never been on an aeroplane. I think that, I mean, you know, this, is, this goes on to, to what I think is a very, very important part of both novels. They're incredibly funny, these novels, and they're about some terrible, terrible things. These guys find themselves in desperate penury, you know, living under railway arches, begging. There's a, a, a child character in Monica's novel who is living in a wardrobe. You know, they, they can't get her out in case she becomes, in case she's deported. It's and yet, not an invention. These things are existed. Yeah. But we find them funny because we almost can't believe them. Why did you think it was so important that humour was such a key element in both, both your books? I think it's, it's the way I see the world. I do find some things very hilarious. I remember there was um, a story someone told me who in India when he was over here, and, and I ended up including it in the book, that for ages he'd walk home from his workplace and he, he said he used to take this massive detour, about a 45-minute walk out of his journey. And someone said to him, "What? Well, why do you do that? And he said, oh, it's because there's police on the way. If I take the straight road, which is a five-minute, you know, it's a five-minute walk, there's, there's police on the way. And he goes, well, I've never seen any police. They said, yes, sir, I'll write outside oh, yeah. the school. I said, no, that's a lollipop lady. <laughs> and that, that kind that's of, gen- yeah. that's, you know, that's humorous. It's funny. It's also sad. It's funny. It's sad. It's, it's tragic comedy. And that's what I, so, and also I think the humor, if, you know, it throws the sort of the darkness into, into sharper relief as well, I think, a lot of the time. And I think that's... Necessary. Sometimes it brings home those um, those tragic moments with greater resonance if if there's if there's humour there, and it makes it more believable. I think because oh sorry, and just makes it more um, sorry, <laughs> makes it more um, uh, human. But well, it's more credible, isn't it? Because we do yeah. find humour in the darkest of places. Otherwise, we'd probably just all sit in the dark and rock back and forth and never go out. Sorry Monica, I interrupted but you were going to say. Absolutely. Absolutely not. I, I totally agree with Sanjeev. Uh, it is um, it is a way to tell a story that you can bear it. Simple as that yeah. for me. But does that lessen the power of it, do you think? Or does it allow, I guess does it allow more readers to come to it? Do you think people would put your book down after ten pages if they thought this is relentless misery you know did, did you do you deliberately want the readers to keep going by you inject it with humor so that they don't sort of give up in despair no I'd rather say it's the the way the, the characters are the way uh, I, I'd like to um, I'd like to be the characters or, or they were in a way they get an autonomy uh, when you when you start when you start telling a story um, they do things you don't plan. <laughs> and I, I struggle to read books that are just unremittingly bleak yeah. as well. I find I'm always slightly suspicious of a writer who doesn't include any sort of humour in his, his story. There's a sort of... I believe you may have competition on the uh, man book along list with the book that I think is quite bleak, A Little Life. I, I, I've only started it myself, but it's not, not full of jokes yet. Um, anyway, going on from humour, I guess language is, is, is a key part of both of these books. Um, you know, Monica's, Monica's book's called The Encyclopedia of Good Reasons. The way that our 
you know, alien girl in a society she doesn't understand, a language she doesn't speak. She collects every single word she ever hears, and there are a lot of swear words, and I think that's particularly wonderful. Um, part of the, she, she keeps them in boxes, but it's very hard because words mean different things to different people, so her boxes are jumbled up all the time because she's like, well, I don't know where to put this because it means one thing to one person, and, you know, immigration means a bad thing to her mother and a good thing to her father um, and, and you know similarly with you language is very important in this what you talked about the caste system we have these characters who on the surface we might ignorantly think are all the same they've all come from India they're all looking for the same thing right they're not they all come from such different classes and such different families in India and I found that use of language so fascinating and it, I wanted to know more about the caste system I think so why why language? You know what? Why did you use these words, or why did you? Why were words the key thing for the book? It's a window to society we live in. It's a um, Sorry. it's a window to society. I think uh, if you come into a country and you learn the language, um, it's it's better to survive. It's, it's my experience. Um, and I wanted to, to show with, with the character how do you get to sense, to values of a society also. It's through words, words filled with a sense, and then transport it and hand it over. Um, yeah, so my, my book's sort of written in a, I suppose in a sort of, it's third person and it's a kind of a um, um, I don't know a neutral third person sort of voice yeah. um, I tried to keep it as clear and as unadorned and as spare as I could because I thought that that, um, that best enabled the story of the characters to shine through there are um, moments and swear words seem to be particularly um instance when I do res resort to the um, Punjabi, I don't know what it is about spoil words, but generally people tend to go to the original language that the characters are speaking in. Um, mainly because these characters, it's, though it's written in English, the dialogue's written in English, they are mostly talking into each other in Punjabi and just to give a flavour of that I thought it was important to keep um, certain words or certain idioms in their original in the original phrase, and I don't provide a, a glossary at the back, and I think in some instances it might be difficult for the reader to understand what what is being meant here. But I think that's you know that's that's so be it. I think you know no one asks you know Franson to explain anything to an Indian audience, so I don't see why. No, and I think you write in such a way that you very easily get hopefully, what these words mean—that they're cuss words or they're you know degrading words—to to, you know someone in the lower caste I certainly yeah. didn't find myself reaching for oh, good Google reaching for the internet <laughs> I was going to say um, <laughs> reaching for my phone and trying to find it but I, I, I found it enhanced the book definitely oh, and, and similarly with you you know you, you use you know I knew you was aware that you were writing in or it was a translated work and yet some of the words aren't translated there are lots of other languages because you have a whole cast of characters from every nation um, what I was interested in with your book in particular Sanjeev was it seems like there's no way out for these people and you then sort of I, I thought you're going to leave us hanging leave them in absolute despair 
but there is this happy resolution and I wondered whether again that was a technique that you employed to to just make us realize that there is hope um, whether it was a cop-out <laughs> um, whether it would have been the longest novel ever if you'd actually filled in the the, the, the gaps yeah. but you know we That's do find out that these people come here hoping for a better life and most of them actually do get it but we you always yeah, assume they, they're never going to get it they get they get a kind of life I think it there's I'll say there's four main characters and I think I think three of them are probably I think I'd say they're going to be okay I think one of them um, I think he's, he's his spirit's probably too far broken for for him to sort of um, recover sufficiently but that said there's an epilogue I suppose is what we're talking about and doesn't he have ultimately the character you think is the most broken in the end is the most sorted in life yeah, the one that you think is going to be the, the one that's so the the untouchable, the the the, the, the so-called low-caste character. He ends up being the one that is probably the most okay. Um, it's really hard if you haven't read the book. I'm trying to not spoil it. I know it's it very well. difficult. Uh, but it's mainly. I mean, the point of that epilogue for me was, you know, the reader's been with these characters for so long and seen them go through through so much, and I. I did want to actually see and show and just know for myself and perhaps confirm for myself that where they're going to be, I think, yeah. 11 years down the line. And for Dolorjan, um the guy who, the low-cast um, character who does seem to be okay, for me it was really important because so much of this book is about um, you know, ideas of goodness and allegiance and what do you, what do you align yourself to and what do you... You know, what do you sacrifice and who do you make sacrifices for and who shouldn't you sacrifice and who do you honour and do you honour your family, do you honour your faith? You know, what are you going to pin your colours to? And he, out of the four characters, he's the only one, because of a tragic event that happens in his past, who sort of says, no, I'm going to live for myself and for myself only. And he has this sort of this relentless will and this relentless inexorable drive to sort of do what's going to be best for him um, on whatever the cost is to other people. And... Now, that's, there's, a, there's a problematic in there as well, but for him, I wanted, and I suppose I did want the, um, the epilogue to show that actually sometimes that is the best course of action, and for him, I think it, it was. And the, the other sure. three characters don't go as far as, and they sort of retain their positions to a certain extent of duty and loyalty and faith and, and whatever, and there's consequences for them to be paid in that epilogue, even though they might be going some sure. way towards breaking free from that. They're in, you know, and 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 they're in the, you know, they're they're still not perhaps as as happy in quotes and colours as uh, the launching will be. Yeah, and what about you, Monica? You know, we your your narrator is a very young girl. Do we know what happens to her? Do you know what happens to her? Is is she in some way you? You know, I was very interested. She's left when she's still a relatively young person, and I'm desperate to know where she is in the world now. I mean, she would be. 60 years old? 50 years old? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> We've done it. Are you going to write a sequel? <laughs> no, it's, it's just very fascinating that, you know, you become so involved with both, with both these books. You just desperately want the best for these characters in a way that I haven't felt in books for a long time because they go through so much to get something that we have that is so everyday. 
you know, to just be able to fly to France for a week on holiday or just be able to not walk three quarters of a mile round the block because you think that a lollipop man is, is a police officer, you know, it, it's astonishing. So I, I felt very fond of them, so I'm glad they were okay. Um, well, we don't know. Um, <laughs> you just said. Um, now, I was going to ask, and I think probably I became very involved with both books because of, because of the way they're written. They are dramatic. I mean, yours reads like a soap opera sometimes, I think. Yours has these amazing scenes where you're just so close to the action, the violence, the plate smashing, whatever it is. Um, Monica works in multimedia, um, and I wondered whether that informed your writing. Um, and I wondered whether kind of contemporary television or, you know, these great dramas that we watch with cliffhangers every 15 minutes informed how you write, or whether you have to switch off the TV, switch off the radio in order to write. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't do both things together. I mean, it's strictly separated, the two works. Um, but the world influences me. And the digital world influences me. It didn't influence this book because we are in the 70s here. Uh, so the digital world would be absolutely different then. But if I would write about these times, um, I would have some, logically, I would have some digital parts in it because it belongs to our world now. I guess it's just we, li we, we, we live in such a snapshot world where things happen so instantly, we find out facts so instantly and I wonder whether that informs the way you write because you, you want to be able to communicate something so simply and straightforward to people because it takes a lot to read a book, it takes mm. a lot to you know, write 500 pages and I, you know, I felt like you're, you, you both had this innate ability to make us understand something quickly but also this page turningness and I mean your, yours is a book in translation so all credit I know Donal is there in the audience you know they're, they're so page turning anyway I, I just wondered what your influences were how you research how you what are you thinking of when you're writing are you thinking I want this to be a great movie I want it to be a great 10 part TV series or, or just a great book no I'd <laughs> I just want to write a great book, um, and everything else can go hang. Really, um, it's not. No, my main wish is was always with this book and with and with all my um, with my first book. It's just to write a book that felt alive and one that I thought might enthrall the reader. And, and I mean, it's very much about using every you know tool and whatever you know limited talents I might have to to bring that to bear as strongly as I as I can. So I'm. I don't think about the reader in the initial um, stages of when I'm thinking what to write about, but when it gets to like the second, third draft, or then you know very much the reader is is or a reader, some abstract being is definitely in my mind about actually how you know are they going to be moved, are they going to feel nervous, are they going to be excited, you know, etc. That definitely comes into play later on because I do I do want I did want the book to be full of you know, dramatic life and um, the language. Um, was meant to be in service to that as well. Um, I wondered whether you, not just thinking about the reader, but whether you both thought about specific readers. Um, obviously, you're writing about controversial things, immigration, um, 
And I wondered whether your community, for example, helped you, informed you in your research, whether your, you know, what you learned about family and Switzerland, you know, whether you really went in deep with family and, and how they felt about the books when they were eventually written. First of all, I don't want to patronize a reader. So I don't want to give, uh, I don't want to paint every color on the, on the wall, which is in the, how do you say, um, the Farbe Palette. <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't think, actually, I don't think of a reader or readers. Um, I actually am very egoistic. I think of books I like to read. <laughs> so I sit and write, and I don't like, I don't like to be patronized. I don't want a word too much. I hate that. But do you worry that, that people are going to read who are there, experience these things at the time, and, and are going to come back and say, well, it wasn't like that? Or do you think artistic license lets you imagine it as it was without worrying about that? Um, no, I mean, I was doing some research. I uh, was digging the archives of Swiss National TV. I was digging the archives also of, of press, anyway. And um, I asked uh, people uh, just who were migrating to Switzerland, I asked, would that be a picture? And for instance, uh, Melinda Nadiaboni um, was very pleased with what, with what I did. I mean, I, ch I just wanted to know, is that is that background correct? Sure. But uh, I also do journalistic work, so I have to ensure that these things are, are uh, tightened up well. Yeah, I definitely asked people, you know, other um, British Asians, um, are you asking to read it? Just, just points of fact, if I got those right. Um, and as I said, I spoke to people who had been um, working in England, um, but had since been um, sent back to India. Um, and I was slightly, because half of this book takes place in, in India, and I've, you know, I've, I was born in India, I've, I've, I've never spent, you know, I've not grown up there, I've never spent more than a month or so at a time over there. Um, so when the Indian reviews started coming out, I was slightly anxious that, you know, they might pick up on some glaring um, error omission I've made. Um, and of course, readers will make it very over on Amazon, make it very clear when you've got something, you've got something wrong. But I think I'm kind of okay with that. And it happened with my first book as well, which was written from the point of view of a Muslim. Um, so again, someone who's you know I don't share that particular commonality with. Um, but I think whenever you make a sort of a cultural leap into into another, there's going to be things that are wrong, and there's going to be things that I I I I I, I you know, I, I, may, I, my, I put across crassly or incorrectly just, mm. just, just because you know, it, it happens. And I think that's a price worth paying for the sake of actually making that, that leap into someone else's, into someone else's um, shoe. So I think I'm okay with getting things wrong for yeah, that it's reason. It's just there are elements where you have to be brave. Certainly in your, you know, you are, a lot of this is about the hidden. You know, it's about things that we don't know there are some very nasty people doing very terrible things and exploitative things to these people and I, I wonder 
well, AI wondered how you did your research, so I'm sure they didn't want to talk to you about it. Um, but then whether you worried that you're going to get yourself in trouble. No, no, they, they don't worry um, at all. And there's people will talk. You know, they're 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 quite happy to, especially you know, because I was mainly speaking to the young men who yeah who'd been sort of at the at the brunt end of these exploitative people um, who don't obviously. But I suppose exploitative people never see themselves as being exploitative, but um, they see themselves as they'd been in that same position twenty yeah. years down the line, and they're just. It's sort just, of, yeah, yeah that's, that's self-perpetuating. That, yeah, it's a rite of passage as far as they think. This is what you go through to eventually one day maybe have a business like me. Um, except that's so they so they think. Um, now, nah, of course, I wasn't um, at all concerned with that. They might be repercussions. I'm, I'm sure there won't be. Yes, of course. Um, if you if you'd like to both do, and I know Monica has another reading that she's uh, prepared. Uh, Sanjeev. Yeah, I can dig something up. And then I think we have 15 minutes. We should open it up to audience questions. If you've got one prepared, you want to go first. Okay. I'll find something. It's very short. Great. Should I the the dialogue of the death? Sure. Yeah, that's great. Or the the covered thing? No, do death. Okay. <laughs> it's a lovely sunny afternoon. Let's do death. Okay, I have maybe I have to say also that little girl is not only a victim of of getting into a family and desperately waiting to be um, to be adopted. Uh, she also is getting very violent. Um, you will know why, but I'm just telling you, she has to think. She has to think about death because uh, she mm, she put the shovel or she hit uh, she hit the girl with a shovel and the girl is unconscious and uh, she's in the hospital and now she thinks about death. What does death look like? Different to each person. Different for each person. My father answered. There's not just one. No. You've won for your all for yourself, in a way. Will you show me him? I can't. Why not? Because he isn't here. And why he is not here? Because I'm still here. And when when he's coming? I don't know. So how are you gonna find each other? I'm not looking for him. <laughs> why not? When two people look for each other, they miss each other. I'm waiting for him. How will he recognize you? I'll do the recognizing. How? I'll know when he comes. I stopped speaking and cleaned my glasses. My father shot the pot of glue. His glasses were white with dust too. Such an important person, death. And my father wouldn't recognize him in the street, not even if he was standing in right in front of him. And he's definitely coming? Yes. Mine too? Yes. Then I'm waiting now too. It can take a while though, my father said. Then I'll get bored maybe. That's very possible. I lay down like I'd seen people do into films. Always when death came visiting, people were lying in their beds, sleeping, and it was very quiet. I pretended to sleep, 
I pretended to be as pale as the woman downstairs and lay with my arms crossed for half an hour. My father was hammering the legs of a chair hard into the seat. Death was never, go never going to come with all this racket. <laughs> it's boring. Do you not get bored waiting? No. Why not? I have something to do. He put the chair back down and my mother opened the door. What are you two up to? We're talking about life, he said. <laughs> um, so in this scene, it's um, Dodgy, Dodlojan, and he's in India, in Bihar, and he's visiting um, a Dodgy um, travel agent to try to get a visa to come to him, or to, to try to come to England um, illegally. Shiv Roop Sky Travel, a small glass-fronted building with a life-size cutout of an air stewardess in the doorway. Dodgy pushed inside into the freeze of the air conditioning. A dark woman, a perfect strip of vermilion in her parting, looked up from behind a desk. She asked if she could help. She didn't smile. I'm here to see Mr. Tipuredi. What is it in connection with? I'm here to see him about some flights abroad. She sighed, seeming to understand, and leaned heavily to one side, perhaps pressing a button. Several minutes passed before a man stepped through the curtain at the back of the office. He was short, even darker than the woman, with a jumped-up little moustache whose tips pointed to God. The woman said something in Tamil, and then the man clicked his fingers and told Dodgy to come upstairs. An hour later, and Dodgy was back on the street, his money satchel lighter. Two weeks, the man had said. He'd called someone in Delhi and said that Dodgy could be on a flight to Turkey in exactly two weeks. After that, he'd be trucked as far as Paris, which was in France, and from there Dodgy would be on his own. Did he understand? Yes, Dodgy said. Of course, I'll come with you as far as Delhi, part of the service. And then Mr Tipperidi took out some forms from his little Tamil drawer and snatched up the pen leaking in his shirt pocket. There was a map on the wall behind him. Where is France on there? Dodgy asked. Hmm? Mr. Tipperidi twisted round. Oh, no. France is in Europe. That is South India. I am from... He reached back and jabbed his pen into the map. There. Kanyakumari, the southernmost tip of India. The end of the country. Dodgy nodded. It is the only point in the world where three oceans meet. So you see, it was in my blood to help people straddle, straddle the seas. He gave a little laugh. It sounded like something he said quite often. Anyway, I expect you'll be wanting to make payment. So as we've only got just over 10 minutes left, I think I'd better open it up to questions. Uh, gentleman in the front row. Hi. Um, I remember seeing you the first time, Sanjeev. And, uh, um, one thing I felt about ours are the streets uh, is very much that this felt to me a novel about Yorkshire and people from Yorkshire and that you where you inhabit a Sheffield accent, a Sheffield dialogue and so on was absolutely straightforward. And but th th that sense of oursness that you know that I recognised was the strange effect because within that I had then to take into some account something I didn't know, which was the content of your book. Uh, here I felt there was, um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that you, you're saying that it, you felt that the effects in language were 
always available and simple because they don't seem so to me. For instance, the uh, I know just think the bit you, before you stop reading in the first one, you describe a bathroom as um, a, 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 as uh, the the water bellows like a buffalo, and the um, the the chrome uh, shower head looks like an alien turd. <laughs> And 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 I, and I think this is kind of you know an alien turd is is right where I feel with this that it, it, <laughs> it's this it's this this kind of thing that you know meeting alienation and that many of your readers will meet alienation they'll meet it in the language in the language that they'll feel resistant to and and, and unaware of it. quite unlike your first novel I wonder if you could say that were those effects there or am I just imagining I'm not the um the alien turd was. Yeah. yeah, the alien turd was absolutely meant to. You know, it's 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 being seen from the point of view of of Rindeep and and Narinda, and so as you mostly Rindeep, he's seeing you know the scenes from his point of view, and that's how he might see it. And the buffalo groans. It's how he might make the connection with with his with his life in India. I suppose so. It, it's I'm really glad you saw those connections. Um, you're, with the first novel, it's, it was in the first person, written, you know, as as this guy's personal account, who was brought up in Yorkshire, and it's very much written or tries to give a flavour of his dialect, Sempton, were and Mither, and and those those kinds of words are in there. Um, but along with that, sort of those other colonial words, which hopefully give it a sort of provide a sort of a compliment and a clash. Uh, with with this book, I'd say it. I did dial down the, the Yorkshireisms because they're not from Yorkshire, obviously. So it was, it was about bringing in those sort of those Indian flavours to the language. As I said, they were speaking; they are always speaking in Punjabi to the other. And when they're not, I do say they said or he said in English, to, just to make that um, uh, evident. Um, and they would have gone anywhere. I mean, that's that sort of the, the they arrive where they arrive in the UK, and they go where the work is um you, you know you know sheffield no. so so that's why it was sheffield, sheffield but they could have gone to work in the docks in cardiff or you know no absolutely and they right so they landed then pretty much all of them landed in london and then somehow they all find themselves independently coming together in sheffield and you're right it's 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 purely because it's a city i know and it's a city in which i'm you know i'm where there are these types of young men who wake up in the morning and get picked up by vans and go to to work in ten minute intervals and come back at night and live this kind of this hidden invisible um, life. So that is yeah. what's surprising about they they will go anywhere and do anything. They will shovel shit if that means they can stay in the UK. And I think that's you know that's the strangeness of it. We can't believe that people would do that. They would just go to a city called Sheffield or a city called Bath. They don't know where they're going. They've got no idea of the geography, basically. No, have not they? at all. They get picked up. It's interesting how in the news um, today I read that the government have put in, are going to pass laws where um, they're going to make it harder for employees, or they're going to insist that employees of takeaways and building sites, construction sites, can no longer use the excuse that they didn't know what, um, that these men had no papers if they're caught, that they have to do their checks. Uh, much more rigorously beforehand, and I was thinking, well, that's sort of where these guys, where these boys work, actually. Yeah, completely. Thank you. The lady in the second row with the blue shirt. 
Can we ask the translator of Monica's novel, or Monica herself? He's directly behind you. <laughs> um, whether uh, there were any particular challenges in this translation? No, I think the whole I think the whole book was a was a challenge, wasn't it, Donald? The whole book uh, was a challenge, but I have to say too that even when I first read it, my head was translating the book. You know, as I first read it, I absolutely adore it. Um, one of the challenges is that Monica is so honest and she really sticks with the perspective and the voice of the character, the main character, but also the others. Um, as a translator, in my experience, you sometimes have to work more closely with the editor at the publishing house, i.e. you're much more likely to have to defend every word and every sentence. And in this case, I had to point out that the mistakes in inverted commas were deliberate. Yeah. yeah? very much part of the voice, very much part of the perspective of the child narrator. And, you know, it wasn't just me being daft late at night or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's what gives it its wonderful humour. It's just in love with words for words' sake, the shape of them in the mouth, that sort of thing. You, you've, it's a book that actually really merits being read out loud, a lot of the pages, because it's, to a, to a young girl's ears, hearing those words and the way they're pronounced is so different to us. And it's not her mother tongue, so it's... Yeah, it's a wonderful book to read aloud, I think. Not to children, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Too many swear words. Yeah, a lot of swear words. Actually, uh, I, uh, the last lecture I do, the last uh, control before a book goes out or it takes, uh, goes out is loud. It's loud because I want to hear the sound. I want to control the sound and the rhythm also of it. And so I make last changes then. Even, write, even, even reading I do sometimes. Thank you. Does anyone else have a question? Oh, yes, the le I can't, sorry, I can't see. Yeah, lady at the back. Hi, uh, my question is that, you know, when you're speaking about an immigrant experience, do you kind of say your passages out aloud to catch the timber and the tone so that, you know, when you're actually writing, you find yourself speaking it first so that it sounds authentic and you get the, the nuance? Um. I, I do, I'm I, I, not so much, I don't think I even perhaps realise I'm doing it, I sort of, especially dialogue, I, I find myself reading it back to myself, but I was muttering it under my breath and just, I think so, um, just to make sure you know, the rhythm, the sound, it sounds credible, sounds realistic. I really like, you know, I think writing of dialogue is probably one of my favourite bits of parts of writing a novel is trying to, when I get into sort of a meaty dialogue scene, I really... Um, like, because I really like listening to the way people talk and th the drama of conversation. I think I find just um, riveting. Um, so I do, I do constantly. I think I find myself muttering the words under my breath. In my case, it was like I had to invent a perspective because I think it's a pure lie to say I'm writing in a children's perspective. It doesn't exist. Sure. It's <laughs> it's artificial because I'm not a child. Um, so I have to invent something. I have to invent uh, the person and also the perspective. And in this case, I wanted really to dig into language, the body of language. And so I thought, okay, then uh, then you're a foreigner and coming coming to that language and and make an examination of it, sort of. Um, this is what I wanted to do also. Anyone else before I ask another question? Oh, okay, the gentleman there. Uh, it's just a question for Monica. Um, 
distinctive part of the book is the girls putting um, words into boxes. And I just wondered um, where you sort of got that idea from, from your experience, or where did it come from that? Yes, I was very happy to have that, that idea one day because I was thinking about subjects um, to transport um, that are um, exciting for us, that are touching for us as uh, grown-ups. And um, she was six, six, year, six years old and had to invent something, how she learns about uh, the meaning of words. Uh, also complicated subjects had to be explained. So um, like le referendum, like democracy, like uh, foreign infiltration, all these things I wanted to have her to discuss and to, to ask about. And uh, this must, was my way out, the trick uh, to, to talk about it, to bring it up to you. Otherwise, I couldn't have done it. I had luck. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask both of you about um, whether you do genuinely believe that books have the power to change people's perceptions. Because actually, f for me, certainly, Sun Sanjeev's book made me look again at those men behind the counter in a takeaway actually and, and think what they'd been through instead of being drunk and rude and demanding my chips at two o'clock in the morning in an Edinburgh cafe. Um, again. <laughs> again, I'm sorry. <laughs> they all know me too well. Um, but you know, all you believe is that, you know, were you writing these books trying to educate us, make us not you know, as guilty of reading these headlines in the tabloids and thinking, yeah, I want them out as well. They're, they're stealing my jobs. They're, they're not helping my kids' education. Is that what you were thinking? Or, or do you have to kind of put that aside and just write the story for the story's sake? I think it's my responsibility. I can, so I do. Yeah, I, I mean, the headlines sort of, they're not even in my mind. That you know, I'm not writing to sort of um, say this is how it really is or I didn't want to give the book any sort of rationale or message um, but absolutely books can change people's mind Pe books can change people's you know it changed my world reading changes my world and it did when I started and it all changes the way I see the world you know, books like uh, Fine Balance or Midnight Children or you know, uh, you know Disgrace I mean those books they've they're absolutely they've changed people's um, view of other human beings and what it is to actually you know, be another um, and I think books do that better than any other thing in any other thing in the world so um, whether or not my books does that or not I've, I've you know I've, I've, I would never make that claim and it um, it's a very tiny um, sort of contribution perhaps to, to the debate but generally books are books are books are it well, I, I certainly think that both these books changed my perception. They widened my mind to things I, I didn't know before. They made me laugh out loud. Um, we have run out of time, so now I need you to just run across to the bookshop, buy them both, honestly, take them home, devour them, read them out loud, um, and, um, you know, enjoy. We're all here because of the power of, of books, so I think that summed it all up, that final question. Um, thanks so much for coming along this afternoon. Um, you've been... 
listening to me, Catherine Summerhays, with Sanjeev Sahota and Monica Cantiani. And as I say, we're going to do a signing. Well, I'm not, but they are in the bookshop in about five minutes' time. Thank you very much for coming. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.